Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This Sunday marks the first Sunday after Christmas. Now, in this particular calendar year of 2022, it is the eighth day after Christmas, which makes it also a feast day, a festival day in the church. So a lot of LCMS congregations are probably going to use the circumcision and naming of Jesus text, which can be found in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 through 27, Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29, and Luke chapter 2, verse 21. But for the sake of the podcast, and for those churches not using the festival, I'm going to continue with the regular readings for year A. So the first Sunday after Christmas readings for us, the Old Testament is from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 14, the Epistle, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and the Gospel from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. So we're going to, again, stick with the year A readings. Typically, that's what congregations do. There is a recommendation that if a festival or feast day falls on a Sunday that you would go ahead and use those readings. But by and large, we typically don't in the LCMS as the only feast and festival days that we usually make use of are Reformation Sunday and All Saints Day, replacing some of the propers readings in the season of Pentecost. So here's Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 14. Now, admittedly, this is just one paragraph, so we're going to read the whole text first. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh according to all that Yahweh has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he? who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert they did not stumble, like livestock that go down into the valley the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So this text begins with Yahweh's steadfast love, or his covenant faithfulness, the idea that he keeps his promise, the idea that he cares for his people always, unconditionally. The praises of Yahweh. We should probably understand that almost like we do the glory of Yahweh, that glory is what causes us to look to him, And thus, the praises of Yahweh would be what causes us to give praise. That would fit quite well with the context here, verse 7. According to all that Yahweh has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them, 
according to his compassion. So the whole picture being painted in this verse, Isaiah is going to tell how great the works of God are. The reason why his people should see him and look to him because he has compassion, because he has steadfast love, because he has saved and delivered them. And so in this text, Isaiah is going to take us back to the work that God has done for the people of Israel of old. And in that, we can also see the foreshadowing of some of the things that Yahweh was going to do for his people in the days to come. Now, I don't want to pass over the abundance of his steadfast love. That's such a great picture. And again, the way to visualize this uh, that I like to share is to think of a, a cup or a dish of some kind and that you continuously are pouring water into it. Eventually, the cup fills. Eventually, if you keep going after the cup is filled, that water is going to get all over the place. It's going to pour over the sides and onto the the table beneath it or, or the floor beneath it or wherever it might be. The water's going to get everywhere. So is the abundance of God's love for us. He pours out his forgiveness. He pours out his care and provision and salvation. And this little body of mine can't hold it all in. That forgiveness strikes us, overwhelms us, overflows us, and we share it with others. We share the good news of our Savior with others. And so Isaiah, in this context, is going to be talking about the steadfast love Yahweh showed to Israel when he rescued them from Egypt. And so there, then, they were also in the same way, supposed to be sharing that love to the nations, that God's name would be made great, And that's what we see at the end in verse 14 of this text. Verse 8, Yahweh said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. The first part of that, actually both parts of that are debatable. They are his people because he's claimed them as his people. In terms of their own faithfulness, their own willingness to do what God gives them to do, to actually follow him and trust in him as their Lord, they're pretty bad at that. But yet, the Lord is faithful. And this is so true also of us today. We aren't faithful to God. We don't keep his commandments to us. We don't always trust him above all things. We often find ourselves worrying over where our food and clothing and shelter and things like that will come from, or much more frivolous things, worrying about things that aren't even needs but wants. We're a mess. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is faithful. Thanks be to God that his promises don't waver on, a, on the whims of my desire, that his promises are sure and certain and fixed and true. So God can speak and say, they are my people, because he claims them as his own. And that has nothing to do with them, but everything to do with him. 
Now, the second part, children who will not deal falsely, that does depend on them, and unfortunately, they often dealt falsely with God and with one another. With God, it's idolatry. It's the adultery of going after other gods, cheating on God the Father who is the husband of his people in the Old Testament, or Christ, who is the husband of his church in the New Testament. With one another, uh, it's not uncommon to see the prophets rebuke the people for using false measures with each other, for robbing the poor and such. But again, God is faithful. He became their Savior. This is again a reference to Old Testament God delivering his people from the land of Egypt where they had been enslaved. We don't know precisely the years of the slavery. We know that they were in Egypt for 430 years, but it's not until a new Pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph, according to Exodus 1, that the slavery part actually begins. So is that uh, a son, a grandson, a great-grandson, or is it a change of dynasties, which did happen as the Hyksos invaded Egypt, We just don't know. But many years of slavery, they cry out after having ignored God for all that time. And he redeems them. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. This shows more than just sympathy or empathy. This is the idea that he is one with his people. Again, the husband-bride kind of language. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Husband and wife are one. When one suffers, together they suffer. When one is hurting, together they are hurting. And so it is also for the church that we are, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, we are the body of Christ. When one member suffers, the whole body suffers, and Christ is the head of the body. He suffers alongside of us. God created these, his people. God claimed them as his own, and so when they're hurting, he's hurting. He saw their affliction, and he was in pain with them. And so he sent the angel of his presence to save them. This is a unique phrase in the Old Testament. Nowhere else, actually all of Scripture, does the phrase angel of his presence appear. So what is this angel of the presence? Well, it depends, I suppose. We could look at it as the same as the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, which is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. That is who showed up to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. It is who God described would be the one to lead them by the pillar of cloud and fire by day and night as they wandered through the wilderness in Exodus 14 verse 19. But as you get to Exodus chapter 23, the next time you see the word angel in the book of Exodus, it switches and it's no longer specifying the angel of Yahweh, but I will, I send an angel before you to guard you. That sounds like just an angel, but contextually across the book of Exodus could perhaps be the same. I mean, it sounds like the same angel from chapter 14 that moves the cloud 
and fire pillar, which again was Jesus. So how you read that Exodus 23 passage does have import here in this verse of Isaiah. The angel of his presence. There is a verse later in the scriptures in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. So, this could be not necessarily Jesus directly, but a regular angel of the Lord sent to save, to deliver. And at that point, not even a regular angel of the Lord, but perhaps a, a high-ranking one. The idea of salvation, saving, would lead us to think of Jesus as well. So I lean towards this being the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of Yahweh in this text. But if it's not, if it's just an angel, then it is the presence of God that saves them. Angels are just servants to God. They do what the master wants them to do. And so it would be still his love, his pity that redeems them. Love. He cared for them. Even though they had rejected him over the years, he still cared for them. Pity. He saw their plight. He saw their affliction. And he chose to act on their behalf. He redeemed them. That is, he bought them back for himself. They would rebel against him again. And we see that in the next verse. So he lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. That's the picture of a parent carrying a child or a man who carries somebody who's been injured or wounded, just holds them and carries them until they are to a place where they can be cared for and kept safe. So the Lord picked up Israel and he carried them. He delivered them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, he rescued them. And yet, verse 10, they rebelled. They grieved his Holy Spirit. They turned against him in the wilderness again and again and again, constantly grumbling against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt only to die out here? And suddenly, in hindsight, looking back on Egypt, It was the good old days. Don't you remember how great things were in Egypt? At least we sat by meat pots and had our fill. The temptation of a wicked man's heart. And so God fights against them. God gives them over to that rebellion. And in this immediate context, that would be a reference to the things that happened to them in their time in the wilderness. As they grumble, and God punishes them. For example, the fiery plague of serpents that came upon them, that bit them and then they died. But yet God did not leave them in such a a plight by themselves. He instead informed Moses that he should craft a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole, that when one of them was bit by a serpent, they could go to that pole in the wilderness looking at it and they would be healed. 
Jesus uses this in John chapter 3 as a picture of himself, that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that when we are bitten by our sin, we look to the cross of Christ and we are healed. And yet, even with that, the people of Israel keep the gold, uh, the bronze serpent, and in the years to come they rename it Nehushtan, and they worship the idol. We are a stubborn and rebellious lot, are we not? But the Lord remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Now, that encourages us to go back to verse 10 and actually take it in a future context from the Exodus. To jump ahead out of that story to the idea that Israel and Judah as God's people, as his kingdoms, as his nations, reject him altogether and so the Lord sends judgment upon them. That in 722 Assyria wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. In 587 the Babylonians come and wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah. And yet God remembers the days of old. He remembers the days of Moses. He remembers his people. He remembers the affliction that they had and the affliction that he suffered along with them. He remembers how he redeemed them, how he rescued them by the power of his mighty hand. And he's going to act such a way again. As he saved them then, so he saves us now. It's the basic premise here. So the questions, rhetorically, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? A reference to the Red Sea, where God parts the waters of the Red Sea, which shows up in verse 12, building up onto two walls, I suppose. Hard to know exactly what that looks like, despite all the pictures and artwork that have been made of that scene in the Red Sea that day. But you have the waters separated so that there is a clear path from one side to the other. And so separated out is the water that even, even the ground is dry for them to walk across, so that their feet do not get stuck in the mud, and any livestock or carts or anything they had with them could cross easily. What a beautiful sight that would have been. Well, maybe not beautiful. What an awesome sight in terms of that word, worthy of fear, to see the great power of God in action. He shepherded them, he cared for them, he guided them, he led them to water, pasture. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? This is a reference either to the tabernacle, the place where God promised he would dwell in their midst and he would speak his word to them, or to that pillar of cloud and fire, which would be his presence in the midst of them. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the presence of God seen by fire or by cloud, and that pillar, very much so. Who has caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. This is a picture of fighting. The right arm is the one you would use to draw your sword, although ancient Israel didn't have a lot of swords most of the time. But God is king. God has whatever he needs, and God is the one who fights for them. Who divided the waters before them, so Red Sea again, to make for himself an everlasting name 
who led them through the depths. That's again the crossing on dry ground across the Red Sea from Exodus chapter 14. But see the making for himself an everlasting name part again. This is of great importance to Yahweh, that the people of this world would see and know that he is God and that they would believe. This is 1 Timothy 2.4, for God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God has declared already in the book of Isaiah to Jesus, his son, the chosen one to rescue and redeem Israel. He said, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49 verse 6. This is God's desire. It's his plan. Jesus Christ will be proclaimed among the nations. And that starts in the Old Testament. Part of the aim, part of the goal of why God does what he does is for others to see so that they too will recognize him and come and return to him in repentance and faith. We see this with the plagues in the book of Exodus to start with. Oftentimes people question the plagues and wonder why God would act a judgment in such a way. And this is the thing about God's judgment to remember. When God judges people, so let's say he judges, in this case, the Egyptians. When he judges the Egyptians, he spares the people around them. And the people around them then get to see the severity of the consequence of sin of our rebellion against God, and they have the opportunity to repent of their own sin, to trust in the Lord. Now, in the case of the plagues, Exodus 7 verse 5 very clearly says what they're for. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The goal of the plagues was so that the Egyptians would see that their gods were false and that God alone is God and they would come to worship him. And indeed, some of them leave Egypt with the Israelites in the Exodus. And so it is the goal that as God parts the Red Sea, that the nations around would hear. This is why when you get to the end of the wilderness wanderings, you're in the book of Joshua, those early chapters, and the men go to spy out Jericho, and they end up in the house of Rahab the prostitute. This is why Rahab says what she does. Starting at 2 verse 9 of Joshua, she says, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What great faith! And it comes from seeing the mighty work of God in this creation. How he saves and delivers his people. And Rahab joins the church. Rahab becomes part of the family of God. Rahab gets to be one of the ancestors of the Savior in the lineage of Jesus. God's name is being lifted up among the earth that all would know 
that all would see, and that no one would have excuse. And this is true. There's no one without excuse. The mighty works of God have been seen in this world far too often. That is the work of the Christian, then, to continue to lift up those mighty works of God, and we tend to focus, rightly so, on the work of Jesus Christ. We can talk about his miracles, yes, of course, but we also like to focus on the cross and the empty tomb, that Jesus died to forgive our sins and that he rose again to give us life. And that promise is not just for us. As Peter preaches on Pentecost before the Jews and they repent and they're cut to the heart and they ask what they should do, he ends up telling them to repent and be baptized, every one of them, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. God's name is made great in all the earth. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. It's an interesting picture. A horse in the desert had a better shot than a man in a desert. If you're just stuck in the desert by yourself walking about, you might be in trouble. But if you have a horse, your odds of survival just jump significantly. Camel might be better, but horse is the word God chose to use here, superior to a man by his himself. So God provides. But God is the one who held them up all those years in the wilderness and brought them to their home. So as livestock go down into the valley and they find rest, right, what's in the valley? Water. And because of water, also good grass to eat, pasture land. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. Psalm 23. Perfect picture here. The Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. And we know that our Lord Jesus Christ gives us rest as he has removed our sins from us. He has removed our guilt. He has made us righteous in the sight of his Father, that we can come before the judgment throne of God and yet live. Thanks be to God through his Son, Jesus Christ. So Isaiah praises God for having led his people and for having made his name glorious in all the earth. And for that, before we wrap here on this reading, I do want to bring up Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 9, where God said, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. God's name has been made known, and for the sake of his name, that is the sake of the continued knowledge of him in this world and of his works, The Lord has shown mercy even to sinners, even to rebellious kingdoms. Ultimately, and we hear that phrase in the absolution, Almighty God in his mercy has given his Son to die for you and for his sake forgives you of all your sins. That the name of Jesus would not be 
used in vain, that the name of Jesus, the sacrifice and work of Jesus, would not be for nothing. God continues to super abundantly pour out his steadfast love on this, his people, and on this, his creation. Our epistle for the weekend ends up being the shortest of our texts. It's Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. One of the pictures Paul had been working with leading into this text in chapter 3, which is actually the part of the reading if you do the circumcision and naming of Jesus readings this weekend, is the picture of a guardian. That a man who has a decent amount of wealth as he tends to his work and to his business, he would leave his son in the care of a guardian, a paid mentor, unless it was a specific servant, in which case maybe not paid, but that this man would then be charged, tasked with raising the son to know the ways of God, raising the son to know even his father's business, so that when the appointed time would come, the guardian would no longer be needed, and the son would be ready to inherit. That doesn't necessarily refer to the father's death, but to the time when the son comes of the age, whatever the father has set, whether it's you know, upper teens or maybe it's in his 20s or maybe it's older. It probably varied. But that, that now young man or now man would be ready to do what was necessary to care for his family too train up a child in the way that he should go when he's old he will not depart from it that kind of a mentality the fullness of time then here in verse 4 is the appointed time kind of idea from that guardianship conversation before that God the Father has set a time when God the Son would come and would do the work that the Lord had given him to do and so, the fullness of time has come. God's plan of salvation, it is time for it to happen. We don't know why. We don't know why God chose that time, that place, but he did. His timing is perfect. Far better than our own. And so he sends forth his son, Jesus Christ, born of woman. That is, born of the Virgin Mary, however... We should not overpass or overlook the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the offspring of Eve that would come to crush the devil. The first good news, the first gospel promise in all of Scripture, Genesis 3, 15. And that gets picked up on in Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, where Paul, writing to Timothy, talks about how a woman, if she continues 
in faith will be saved in childbearing. And that's a reference to the fact that eventually the Savior was going to come and, and did. Because that woman in 1 Timothy 2 is Eve. Nor should we simply gloss over the fact here that Jesus was born. That God was born. This is the glory of the incarnation. That he became enfleshed. That he took on flesh. That he became a man. That he humbled himself to the point of being a child. To use our culture's language to the point of being a fetus. Which, by the way, is the Latin word for offspring. That's one you can use, by the way. That's helpful in conversations about life. Very much so. Jesus humbled himself to the point of becoming just the smallest of a child inside of Mary's womb. He's God. He could have come as a full-grown man. He could have made a, a suit of flesh for himself. It's kind of weird to phrase it that way, but how, I mean, what else, right? But he doesn't. He comes very humbly, and he serves. Born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And this is the picture of the old covenant. The idea of a covenant is that it is a pact made in blood, cut in blood, quite literally in the Hebrew. It's not made, it's cut. And that's because to make one, you have to sacrifice animals. Blood has to be shed. And so we go back to, for example, Genesis 15. And Abraham, still Abram at the time, sacrifices some animals, cuts them in half, and he lays their halves opposite each other. So he makes two rows from the halves of these animals, and in between them, where he killed them, is the blood. It's a bloody mess. And to make a covenant together then, whatever the terms are that the men are agreeing upon, they would then both together walk through the blood of the covenant, and that seals it. The penalty for then breaking a covenant is death. If you don't keep up your term, if you don't do what you said you would. And so, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, God puts Abraham to sleep. Abraham does not walk through the blood. God walks through the blood alone, thus binding himself to this covenant with man. And so when it is broken, because Abraham did not walk through the blood, Abraham's blood is not good enough. Abraham's blood cannot pay the price. And so Jesus Christ is born under the law. He is born into that old covenant in order to be the bloodshed, the price paid, to redeem us. And he does. And the beauty of the covenant language in Scripture is this. The same blood that is shed to pay the price for the broken covenant of old is the same blood that also is the blood shed to cut and create a new covenant. Because Jesus' body is sacrificed and Jesus walks through the blood on his way to Golgotha. To the cross to hang and die. Old covenant Sealed, finished, done away with, new covenant, made, cut with man. A covenant of forgiveness and life. 
that's not really our text here, so let's return to Galatians. So Jesus redeeming those who were under the law. He came to save us, to redeem us, that we might receive adoption as sons. The law, by the way, was the guardian from chapter 3 that raised us, showed us the Father's business and how to live as the people of God that he wanted us to be. And we failed. That we might receive adoption as sons. Paul is the only one in Scripture to use adoption language. He does it in a few of his epistles. It's very strong language, a very powerful picture because we understand adoption. That's why God uses family language in, in Scripture so frequently, because in part, at least, it's also true, but it in part is because we get it. It's like trying to use an analogy. If you or trying to teach somebody something and you use an analogy that they don't understand that makes no sense to them. Like if you wanted to use an analogy with me, don't go into musical theory and, and talk about notes and stuff. I don't get it. I can't read music. You'll lose me. God uses words and pictures that we can understand. And adoption is one of them. We know that when you adopt a child, you take them out of whatever situation they were in. Maybe an orphanage. Maybe abandoned on the street. Maybe uh, a planned moment where the parents who were going to raise the child have recognized for some reason, or even by death, that they can't do it. And so it's already been arranged for you to take over. We know when you adopt that child that they are brought into your home, they take your name, they are made your family. You are now their father, you are now their mother, and you are going to care for them as your own because they are. You have made them your own. And this is what God has done for us. And so we talk about it through baptism that we have been adopted as sons, that in that water and word as the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is placed upon you He's claiming you as his own. You are his. You are rescued out of your brokenness and you are brought into a new family. The way Paul phrases it in Colossians is that we have been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are sons. This is the work of Christ to redeem us to rescue us from the brokenness of the law, our brokenness, and to make us heirs of his kingdom. We're part of the family now. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. This is one of those phrases in the New Testament that shows us that Christ and the spirit are in us. We get phrases both ways, this one about the spirit particularly. God dwells in you. You are a temple. Your body is a temple of God, the dwelling place of God among men. Because he's in us. Because he's in us is also why we believe as Christians we can't be demon-possessed. Because you are already possessed. You are his possession, 1 Peter chapter 2. If he is in you, there is no room for another. And so that spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Abba, being another word for father in Aramaic. Here, Father, 
reminds us, though, of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father. Not somebody else's. Ours. We are his. He is ours. What good news this is. Jesus teaches us in the prayer to pray and to trust that he is our Father. That God is our Father, that he has adopted us, he has made us his own, and he will care for us as a father cares for his child. This is such good news. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That's the picture of adoption. We were slaves, but God adopted us. He took us out of the house of slavery and brought us into his own. Much like the picture of Isaiah talking today about the Exodus and Egypt, that you have been plucked out of Egypt. Right? God rescued them from the house of slavery to be his own people, to give them their own land. So God has rescued us from our slavery to sin, and he has made us heirs of his kingdom. The son inherits, the slave does not. The son gets the home. The son gets all that was the father's. So Christ has all that is the father's. 1 Corinthians 15, everything's been subjected to him. And because we are of the family, because we are one with Christ, it's all ours. We get to reign in paradise, in the new heaven and the new earth. We get to reign with Jesus forevermore. We now come to our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So this text begins with the leaving of the Magi. They've come to see their newborn king from afar. They've walked likely hundreds of miles, and we're not told specifically how far they've come, but a long way. And they've returned home by another route, not going back to Herod. And at that point, then, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, so comes to him by night, as he has before and teaches Joseph how to care for his family. It's an interesting parallel here back to Judges, to the birth of Samson, that Samson is foretold to his father Manoah and his mother. First to the, the mother, an angel comes and teaches her that she will be with child and that he will be one of those Nazarites, specifically vowed to God. She goes and she tells her husband, and he ends up praying that the angel would come back to teach them how to raise the child. The angel pretty much says the same thing over again when he comes back. But the picture there, Manoah wanting the angel to give him guidance on how to raise his son, and so we see here, 
the angel giving Joseph guidance in how to raise and care for his son, specifically taking the child and his mother, so Jesus and Mary, and fleeing to the land of Egypt. Now, how far is that? At a minimum, it's about 75 miles. That's less than most people tend to think because we we look at the picture and we think that they have to travel from where they are in Israel, in Bethlehem, that they have to go all the way down to, like, the Nile River. But the fact of the matter is, the territory of Egypt at that time did expand greatly over to the east. And so it's not near as far to actually enter Egypt. They don't have to make it to the Nile. Now, maybe they did, but they don't have to. So 75 miles at least. Which, if they're on foot, walking, it's a few days, three or four days journey. If they have an animal, a donkey or a camel, that would make it quite a bit faster. A couple of days on a donkey. I think a camel might be able to handle that in a day. But more than likely, probably a couple of days. So it's not... Again, that far of a trip. Anyway, remain there until I tell you. So the angel is already going to promise here that he's going to tell Joseph again when it's safe to return home. And he tells him why he's going. Herod's going to try to kill the child. Herod's going to try to kill Jesus. Protect your family. Protect your son. And the best way to do that is not to take up arms and fight against Herod. The best way to do it is to just leave. Avoid Herod for now. So Joseph wakes up and he does what he's been told to do. He takes Jesus and Mary by night. So he doesn't even wait. The angel speaks to him. He wakes up. He goes. He doesn't wait for morning. He takes them there. They remain there until the death of Herod. Josephus would argue that Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, Josephus being one of the chief Jewish historians in history. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, that's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It's the third fulfillment of prophecy in this book, according to Matthew. That's the idea what we talked about in the Isaiah text, that God took his people out of Egypt, he rescued them, he brought them to their own new home, new land, the promised land. Timing-wise, again, I mentioned Josephus says 4 BC is the death of Herod the Great. This is one of the reasons why Christians who study this history and try to figure out the timeline, end up placing the birth of Jesus somewhere between 6 and 4 BC. This is one of the reasons, at least. I know the calendar system doesn't quite work that way. Uh, the calendar has right BC and AD before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. So his birth, it's not after death, because then you'd have 30-ish years in between. They're still hinging around that. I know our world has tried to change it. They now do BCE and CE before Common Era and Common Era. But what's the era change? What causes the shift from one to the other? It's still the birth of Jesus. So they didn't get away from it as much as they wanted to. But the picture there is that sometime in the future, and I I didn't study this for the podcast, but hundreds of years later, I believe it may have been, that somebody came up with the calendar system that we now use 
and they tried to figure out the birth of Christ historically at that point when it fell. And so they based the calendar, they based the shift from B.C. to A.D. on when they thought Jesus was born. They did decent, but they missed by a couple of years. That's all right. Um, so we don't have to go change the calendar system. That's It is what it is. Uh, the church uses a different calendar anyway. So, yeah, 6 to 4 B.C., somewhere in that range from what the Gospels tell us, the historical details they provide us. So, the prophecy again out of Egypt, I called my son from Hosea 11 about the Israelites being brought out of slavery, but also then the picture of Jesus, a foreshadowing of what was to come, of a greater salvation that would come in Christ for us. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, literally magi, by the way, in the Greek, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, Magi. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. They're not wise men, by the way, although they were probably pretty wise. Uh, Magi is the word Matthew uses. It is a reference to a class of Zoroastrian priest. And their job, their goal, was to gain all knowledge. Like within their faith, their structure, as a priest, that's what their task was to do, just to learn a bunch of stuff. And they had run across the scriptures of the Jews. And they had read the prophecies of a Savior who was to come. To be born even in Bethlehem, they had learned. And so they ended up coming to faith because of Scripture, because of God's Word. Thanks be to God. I don't know that verse 16 is fair to the Magi. I don't know that I would phrase it that they tricked Herod, although Herod thinks he's been tricked. They didn't go back to him because an angel of God told them not to go back to him. They went home by another route. But anyway, Herod, realizing the Magi weren't returning, which is interesting, how long did that take him to realize? Are we talking about a day? Probably not. Are we talking about a week? A month? I I don't have an answer to that question. But Herod gets angry. And in his anger, he does something terrible. He orders the slaughter of every child, every boy child, because a girl can't become king. She's not a threat to his throne. Every boy in Bethlehem, two years and under. This is known as Holy Innocence Day. It is one of the festival days of the church and remembered on December 28th. There are some who refer to these boys as the first martyrs of the church. Chronologically, there's truth to that, but at the same time, they're not really martyrs. They didn't really die because of their faith. Because we don't even know if they had faith. We don't know if their families had faith. So it's a little, it's a bit of a stretch to say that they are for sure martyrs. 
It's also a stretch to say they're innocent because we are all conceived in sin. They were innocent of what Herod accused them of, at least, which was the threat to his throne. They did not do anything specifically to bring about Herod's angst, so they're innocent in that way. A lot of people use verse 16, according to the time he had ascertained from the Magi, to say that the Magi don't show up for two years, that Jesus is two years old by the time the Magi arrive. And I'm, I don't believe that's true at all, not even close. And we'll come back to a fuller timeline before the end of the podcast. I do want to take a look at that again. But for now... Herod has learned from the Magi about the timing of the birth of a boy. And it's enough to cause him to kill a bunch of baby boys. We see the anger and the paranoia of a king enslaved to his own power. His thirst, his greed for power, his lust for power unquenched. And rather than recognize that a boy would take years to grow to be a king, so instead of seeking out this child for himself and saying, God has sent this child to be the king, okay, I'm going to raise him and help raise him to be a good king. I'm going to teach him well. And then 15 years from now, whatever, he can take my place. Instead, he is so paranoid about losing his power, and we know this caused family conflict, killing some of his own relatives to keep his throne too. If he learned Jesus was two, do you think he would have stopped with two-year-old boys? Herod commands his soldiers to kill any child he thinks might even possibly remotely be a threat to him. If he's paranoid enough to make this order, he's not going to stop with close. Nor are his soldiers going to go into Bethlehem and go knock on a door and say, Is that child two and a half? They're going to take any kid that looks that age or close to that age and they're going to kill him. This is a broader stroke, a broader brush that is being painted over this town. The other thing that that notes that, Herod has learned that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but where does he actually strike? And this is one you don't normally hear, but it's right there in the text. Killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region. You didn't have to be in Bethlehem itself. If you were near it, goodbye. Herod didn't want to miss So the argument that this teaches us Jesus was two and the Magi came, it's not. Herod recognized he learned from the Magi that this is a boy. He's aiming for a child. And so he kills anything he thinks could be even remotely close. So the idea that Jesus could even still be a newborn fits. Now, before we leave this Holy Innocence Day idea, this has been used by... Christians and non-Christians alike to try to discredit this text, to try and discredit Matthew and his gospel, because the account of the Holy Innocence doesn't show up elsewhere. 
the the Roman historical records don't note something like this. Even Luke's account, Luke is a much more detailed historian's account. He doesn't record anything about this. Why is it skipped over? And so a lot of people argue it never happened. This is just Matthew you know, making up something to, to fit his context as a literary device. And I'm going to say, throw all that stuff out the window. This is the word of God. Now, why might it have gone unnoticed elsewhere? Bethlehem at the time is probably a village of no more than a few hundred people. We're not talking about ordering the death of hundreds of people. To kill every baby boy in Bethlehem might have been a handful of kids. This isn't a grandiose slaughter of hundreds or thousands. It's a handful. Now, including the surrounding region bumps it up a little bit, sure. But that is part of the context for us to consider. It's still a wicked order. It's still a wicked king who's power-hungry and mad. This is still terrible to do. And it doesn't lessen it at all, but it points to the historical idea here of why it might have been missed and looked over by other historians' accounts. If the U.S. government orders the execution of a thousand prisoners, that's more likely to make it into a history book in the years to come than if the government orders the execution of a couple of guys on on death row. In fact, we usually don't even hear about those. Who hears about those people being executed? So that's the kind of idea I wanted to point out. Matthew then gives us the fourth fulfillment of prophecy in his book, Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And here, what's going on? A voice heard in Ramah. That voice very easily identifiable, weeping in loud lamentation. That's the next phrase. Ramah. Ramah was a, a city located in the Negev, that is the, the dry country on the south side of Israel. It is where Elkanah and Hannah are from in the Old Testament. That couple that have the son, Samuel. And then Rachel mentioned also by name. Rachel is mother, well, wife of Jacob, the patriarch, Israel, one of four wives. She is the mother of his sons, Joseph and Benjamin. The connection here between Rama and Rachel, Rama, if we are taking it as a reference to Hannah, is barrenness. Hannah was barren. Rachel was barren. And yet in both cases, the Lord opened their wombs. They grieved that they could not have children, and then God gave them children. But here, what we're seeing is they grieve, the people of God are grieving, and cannot be comforted because the children are no more. It is as though they are barren again. Right? So Hannah and Rachel grieved their barrenness. Now these families are grieving because it is as though they are barren. I mean, they weren't. They were given the gift of a child, but that child was executed, swiftly taken away. They've lost. They are as good as barren. Barrenness was seen as a curse. This was seen as a curse upon them in that way. So they are crying, lamenting so greatly, so strongly that they cannot be consoled. That's a deep expression. God can console. Um... But we can, we can picture that. Some of you have been there in moments of deep grief. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Herod died, so again 4 B.C.-ish. Another angel appears to Joseph. I shouldn't say another. An angel appears to Joseph again because the angel in verse 13 had said, Remain there until I tell you. It makes it sound like probably the same angel. Messenger delivering God's word to Joseph. Now it's time to go home. Herod's dead. The one who was seeking to kill Jesus is dead. It is intriguing that that's plural. The ones seeking the child's life. Those could be a reference to the royal we idea for the king, King Herod, although he's not technically a king. But that language is used by those in great power sometimes. It could, on the other side, be a reference to maybe the soldiers. Maybe Herod sent three soldiers to kill the kid too, and maybe God has brought about punishment upon them for doing such a terrible and wicked thing. It's hard to say, um, but Herod's gone. That much we know. And so it's time to go home. When Herod dies, his territory that he oversaw was divided in half and split amongst his sons. And Archelaus is going to end up with the title Ethnarch of the Tetrarchy of Judea. He'll stay in that position for nine years until he's removed and the, the entire area is reorganized into the province of Judea, which is what we know it as typically in the New Testament time because of Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, for example. So Herod is gone, Archelaus takes his place, and Joseph fears him. He was afraid to go there because of Archelaus. This is the first really glimpse of unfaithfulness that we see in Joseph. As Christians, we are not to be afraid. He has divine messengers guiding him. And in fact, a divine messenger will tell him here to go somewhere else too. And that seems to be the Lord showing mercy and having pity upon him um, as he he has shown a, a weakness that he fears man. God provides. This child will be the savior of the world. That should be a great comfort to Joseph. At the same time, a great challenge to know that you have to raise him, but a great comfort, too, because you know that God is going to safeguard him. It's not all up to you. That's fantastic. And this is true of our raising of our kids, too, in a limited sense. The idea that it's not entirely up to me. God does not need me to raise my kids. I'm thankful that he has entrusted them to me, that they are a gift from him, and that I am to raise them. But God doesn't need me to do it. I could die today, and the Lord would still provide for my children. There's a church, there's a family that surrounds them that will help care for them too. So, a similarity. But it's the fear that I'm picking up on. We are not to fear. We are not to worry. God provides. 
So he goes to Galilee, which is off to the north, west of the Sea of Galilee. And he lives in a city called Nazareth. This is where Jesus will end up calling it his hometown later on in the Gospels. That the words of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is number five, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, the tricky part here is you won't find a prophecy in the Old Testament that says that. What you will find in the Old Testament are several prophecies about how the Messiah would be despised, such as Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8 and verse 13, and then Isaiah 53, verses 2, 3, and 8. And the people of Nazareth were despised. So that seems to be the connection point that Matthew is drawing upon here. It's not the language that in English we would like it to be, but it is, it is nonetheless, again, faithful and true. This is God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, I mentioned that I would cover a little bit more before the episode ended today about when the Magi visited, since we've got some of the timing element in this text. Again, Jesus born somewhere between 6 and 4 BC. That's our starting point. And the only detail we really get is that when the Magi arrived to see Jesus, he's in a house. So a couple of quick notes. There's no reason to believe the star doesn't appear until Jesus is born. Why could it not have appeared before he was born to lead the Magi on their way? Something to wrestle with. Another is the idea of just their culture at the time that the house idea is probably a faithful interpretation. There's nothing in scripture that says Jesus was born in a stable or a cave or anything like it. In fact, the word in isn't even in Luke 2, although it's commonly placed there in our English translations. It's the word for a guest room. Luke uses it only one other time in his his gospel in a reference to Jesus sending the disciples ahead of him into the village to find a man and asking him if he had prepared the guest room for the Passover. That's the the word, kataluma, in Greek. And so here, the picture of the ancient town of Bethlehem is that their homes would have been two rooms. You come into the house and you're on a dirt floor where they would keep their animals overnight. If you have a cow or a donkey, you bring them into the house so that they won't be stolen overnight while you sleep, and also so that they can provide some body warmth in the home, help heat the home. And then you would have a raised platform, a few steps leading up to the platform, and that you would live there. That was your living space, your eating space, your sleeping area. It's raised so that the donkey or the cow don't roll over and, you know, crush you during the night. On the edge of that platform, you would put a feeding trough, a manger, so that you could fill it with, for example, hay before you went to bed, so that they could graze in the middle of the night if they were hungry without waking you up. Much like we today might leave a water bowl out for a pet overnight so that they don't start meowing or whimpering or whatever it is in the middle of the night because they're thirsty. That's the kind of picture of the ancient home as well. And the second room was the guest room, the Cataluma, which often had its own entrance. So there's nothing to say that Jesus isn't born in a home. The picture there could be that as they came to Bethlehem, all the guest rooms in the, in the community were full. Everybody's spare room was full. And then Joseph was taken in 
in preposition into the home of one of his relatives and got to stay in their living room. So they slept in the same room as another family, a crowded house. And that Jesus was born into such a thing as that is just as likely, maybe more likely, than the typical nativity story that we hear of. So in that case, the Magi are not delayed at all, necessarily, by the text that we have in Scripture. They do see him in a house. How long was that? Well, it might have been immediate. It might not have been, but it's a possibility. What makes this difficult and worth mentioning, and why I'm doing this, is that it's really hard to put the text of Matthew and Luke together. They're accounts of the childhood of Jesus. Because Luke has the Holy Family leave somewhere for Jerusalem by the time of being 40 days old. And then they go off to Nazareth as their new home. Whereas Matthew has the Holy Family leave from Bethlehem after the Magi visit, and upon their return, they settle in Nazareth. So a couple of possible pictures here of how this works. Let's go for the early visit of the Magi first. Jesus is born, again, 6 to 4 BC. The Magi visit sometime within those first couple of weeks of Jesus' life. By the time he's eight days old, he's named and circumcised. Then the family flees 75 miles or more down to Egypt. They remain there until Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. And then returning from Egypt, they are afraid. So not, not wanting to go and being warned not to go to Archelaus, they quickly visit the temple at 40 days in Jesus' life so that they can do the purification rite for Mary and then immediately set off for Nazareth. This is possible. Again, the 75-mile-to-Egypt journey makes this possible, that they could travel so that Jesus is born, the Magi come and visit within the first couple of days, or even the first couple of weeks, they take a two- or three-day journey down to Egypt. They're there for a week, a couple of weeks. Herod dies, and the angel calls them to come back. That's a possible structure. Another possibility for a later visit is that Jesus is born between 6 and 4 B.C., day 8, circumcised, given the name Jesus. On day 40, Joseph and Mary travel to the temple, Then the struggle is you have to push off Luke's idea that they leave from the temple to Nazareth with the idea that at this point sometime the Magi visit them, they go to Egypt, Herod dies, and they return to Nazareth at that point. So it it necessitates saying Luke left something out, which he obviously did. He doesn't talk about the Magi at all. But it's to say that there's a gap when Luke said that they went after the temple to Nazareth. So... It's a difficult thing to put the two together, but something that we do want to wrestle with because we don't want our faith to be at a point where an atheist can simply say, oh, you didn't know there was this conflict in Scripture? It doesn't have to be a conflict at all. These texts can be reconciled together. They just, they're not easy to stick together, but that doesn't mean they're not true. And it doesn't mean they don't fit. We have two small accounts of the first 12 years of Jesus' life. There's a lot missing, but that's okay. As John said, if all the things about Jesus were written, the books of the world could not contain it all. We're thankful for the word that God has provided. We're thankful that he's provided a Savior that has rescued us from our sins, redeemed us from under the law, and adopted us as sons.
Oh